Nightjar would be pretty much top of my list at the moment. It's an unmarked door. You have to know exactly where to look. Nightjar is your quintessential, imagine that kind of US prohibition era, 1920s themed bar, wooden bars, classically dressed bartenders. You don't even have to look at a menu. They will say, what's your favorite spirit? What kind of flavors do you like? Mm -hmm. Do you like sweet? Do you like sour? Do you like fruit? And they'll just make you something. Royal Baby Mania, Trendy Hidden London, Key Sights and Tips to Get Off the Beaten Path, Leo Heaton, a professional blue badge guide, shares all about it today on this episode of Andy Steve's Travel Podcast. Leo reveals just a few of the many reasons that make London such an incredible, modern and diverse city. Don't forget the speakeasies and the cocktail clubs. You hear that? London's calling. Sharing tips, tricks and tales from around the globe. This is Travel for the Next Generation. You're listening to the Andy Steves Travel Podcast. All right, everybody. This is Andy Steves on the Andy Steves Travel Podcast, and I am very excited to be bringing to you a guest straight from the street to London. Uh, we got Leo Heaton uh, beaming in, and I'm so excited to have you. She is a blue badge guide, and I consulted with her on the new edition of my guidebook, Andy Steves Europe, City Hopping on a Budget. Leo, uh, thank you so much for joining me, and cheers. You are so welcome. That was the worst English accent I think I've ever heard. <laughs> good, good. Well, I'm glad to have the authentic one on the other end of the line here. So you are a blue badge guide. That means you are a professional guide that takes groups and private tours all around London. Um, what I'd love to do is touch a little bit on um, what makes a blue badge guide and what what's worthwhile about having these uh, authentic guides on a visit to London. Okay. Well, what makes us special is that we go through a very intensive course of training to do what we do. It's almost like an audition process. We apply for the course. We have to, a bit like when you apply to university or college, you have to fill in the whole form about why you want to do this, why you think you'd be good at it. It's a full-on two-year process from selection to qualification. And during those two years, we are trained in guiding technique, all of the things that we need to know to share with visitors to London about the places that we're visiting. So we take people to sites like Westminster Abbey, the Tower of London, St Paul's Cathedral, all the museums. And we're also qualified to go outside of London. So I can take people to Stonehenge, to Bath, to Windsor Castle, anywhere and everywhere. And the qualification is regional. So I'm a London guide, but you could also, if you were going up to York, you could hire a North of England guide, you could, if you were going down to Kent, to Dover on a cruise, you could hire a South East England guide to take you around that region. So we're everywhere. Oh, that's so special because I'm very much uh, London focused in terms of my UK experience. Whenever I'm coming to England, I'm always just stopping into uh, London, making my way to Edinburgh and moving on to Dublin. But man, there's so much history in the city of London alone and throughout the rest of the country. So um, it's definitely worthwhile having a blue badge guide. What I like about them, though, is it, generally in my experience, they're very professional and they know the general history of London, but you can also utilize their experience and their expertise to get off the beaten track. The reason I connected with you is because I was hunting for those who are in touch with the trendy side of London. And in terms of overall experiences in any city visit across Europe, it is so cool to go to the east side of London right now. Can can we chat a little bit about what's up in Shoreditch, the east side, and even what's the, uh, the town just north that's also popping off right now? I added that into my book as well. 
was that Dalston and Hackney? Dalston, Dalston, exactly. And so um, I even wrote up like a mile shortage walk from south to north. Uh, mm-hmm. What if we kind of took our listeners on a little stroll through uh, <laughs> through the shortage? What do you say? We can certainly do that, definitely. Cool. So I'll get my book. Um, and you haven't seen this, but you know shortage like the back of your hand, I know. Um, I start off with Brick Lane near the old Spitalfields Market. So uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about old Spitalfields because that's a super cool zone right there. Spitalfields is incredible. If you'd gone to Spitalfields Market as little as 50 years ago, you would have seen a completely different vibe than there is now. And what there is now, they've completely revitalized this Victorian fruit and vegetable, you know, wholesale space. And they've turned it into something that really captures the vibe of East London. So it's got street food stalls, it's got pop-up kind of retro vintage um, shops and market stalls. It's got more kind of high street places that you can eat as well if you want a more formal kind of sit down vibe. But ultimately, they've preserved this incredible market that if it hadn't have been for local people campaigning, it would have been turned into what you see in so many other corners of town, which is developers coming in and flattening everything and building something new. So Mm -hmm. you still have this amazing vibe of old East End London. Mm but in a totally modern, very trendy, very vibrant it's, part of town. It's so cool because you got the like the exposed kind of iron uh, revolution uh, yeah. beams up top. In this. So it's kind of like a high slung ceiling with you got a few chains, but you're right. There are pop-up markets. There's fashion. There's food. It's so cool. So that kind of anchors the bottom of the mile. Um, that butts up against Brick Lane. Um, Brick Lane is known as the Bangladeshi corner of London, right? That's where you can have right. some of the, the most delicious chicken tikka masala and in the birthplace of chicken tikka masala as far as i understand the the dish that's so famous was actually invented somewhere over here in london not uh, so much in bangladesh i am sorry to say that is absolutely the case yeah if you ask any <laughs> native you know all the chefs that are lining up on brick lane where does chicken tikka masala originate from they're not going to tell you some amazing corner of bangladesh they're going to tell you uh yeah it's uh it was probably somewhere in the north of england or in the midlands around about birmingham way is probably yeah. where it started but we have claimed it brick lane is amazing brick lane uh if you start off at that southern end where um, Spitalfields Market is and you start to walk up, you're starting to see now not just the traditional, the Indian restaurants, the place to get a really good curry, but you're also seeing, and this we can probably touch on maybe a bit later, regentrification. you're starting to see other restaurants and cafes start to pop up as mm-hmm. well. So what was five or ten years ago, that was where you went for curry, it's now there is a street food market. As you go further up towards the old Truman Brewery, you've got a street food pop-up that is in one of the old market stalls. Um, it's amazing. What is that called? Because there's all sorts of stuff. This this neighborhood is so dense. There, I have yeah. a Poppy's Fish and Chips uh, uh-huh. for, for a little snack. Um, I, I had a group come to Brick Lane recently and they loved their meal at, I want to say Old Spice. Don't uh, quote me on that, but I'll have to post it in the show notes. But uh, yeah. we worked with a restaurant and, the, and it was budget friendly, delicious. And just to tie up the chicken tikka masala story, isn't it just like somebody threw together a bunch of leftover spices and it's just kind of like what was ever left over, threw it all in and, and it became popular? 
Well, I think the creation behind it, we Brits are not renowned for our adventurous food palate. That's right. It's That's only right. been in the last maybe, you know, since London's become this kind of food capital. Mm -hmm. But certainly when the chefs, when these cooks were coming over, creating what for them was a native dish, we couldn't handle the spices, the heat. Mm -hmm. So they just whacked a whole load of cream in, <laughs> just mellowed it down and turned it into this amazing dish that we now are like, yeah, that's yeah. proper curry. That's but actually, <laughs> I think if you asked anybody from anywhere in the Indian subcontinent, you know, is this a real curry? They'd they kind of turn up like, their nose. No. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. So um, we'll keep it moving because there's a there's a lot to see. I think maybe you were talking about Boiler House Food Hall. Is that is that possible? That's um, one of them. Yeah. As you go up, I mean, there is Brick Lane Market, which runs yeah. um, on a weekend. It's crazy because the whole street is lined with mm -hmm. outdoor vendors selling bric-a-brac, selling food. There's juice bars. You'll find, you know, from somebody who's just emptied out their living room onto the street and gone, come and buy my stuff. Yeah. to people who are far more the kind of Etsy end of the thing. They're actually making, you know, craft, beautiful things that they've made. The, the whole the whole range of people selling all sorts. But there is, and as you walk up... Sorry to interrupt, way, but what I love about this area is we're talking like meter by meter and, and block by block. It mm -hmm. is so dense. Um, from from Old Spitalfields Market to, to kind of Old Truman Brewery and Brick Lane Market, we're only talking like two or three blocks. It's crazy. Absolutely. So... Um, so that's why that's why I love this neighborhood so much. Um, one of my favorite spots is a Serial Killer Cafe. <laughs> yes, wonderful <laughs> spot. Amazing. Talk about two local guys. I think their brothers had this idea, you know, if Starbucks can sell a coffee for £3.50, then why on earth can't we specialize in cereal from all over the world? So they literally have, you walk into this tiny little space, it's kind of not even five foot by 10 foot, maybe this mm -hmm. small little cafe space and every wall space is covered with every cereal from all over the world. And you walk in and you can specify what milk you want. You mm -hmm. can specify your cereal <laughs> and you sit there and you have your bowl of cereal with your chocolate milk. Yeah, <laughs> That's very, great. Very cool. And, and we're talking cereal as in breakfast, obviously. Yes. C-E-R-E-A-L, Killer Cafe. Yes. That's really cool. Um, just around the corner from there, I have uh, Lady Dinah's Cat Emporium. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have pretty hardcore allergies, so I don't, I don't go anywhere near cats. But for some people, they really like that. Like, that would be a slow death for me. Oh, no. Well, we'll have to dose you up on antihistamines and get you in there. <laughs> I guess so. It's good fun. Bring them on. Bring them on. Oh, my gosh. Um, I was talking to my dad about updating this guidebook and how many steps I put in just to make sure things were still open. Um, yeah. The thing about East London is it's so trendy. It's always changing. There's places popping up and closing down. Um, Absolutely. So what I like to teach my, my listeners is I can't tell you every cool hostel or every cool museum or every cool experience to take what i do want to teach you is how to identify them yourselves when yeah. you're walking through london can you offer some tips about how to um, identify places that are authentic or um, how to see if they're a tourist trap um, are there any visual clues you look for well i mean my first tip would be steer clear of anywhere that is neon lights and flashy in central town i mean anyone who is familiar I guess a lot of your listeners are going to be based in the United States and if if something looks like Times Square then that's what you're getting if you mm -hmm. know Leicester Square the kind of areas even Piccadilly Circus is great and everybody wants to tick that box mm -hmm. but as soon as you get off the main drags 
don't be afraid to head off up a side street. And if something looks like it's, for example, Chinatown, if you're walking through Chinatown, which is just a block behind Leicester Square, really authentic, but you'll be able to tell which the good restaurants are. Are there the local Chinese community? Is it full of local Chinese people? Because if it is, that's going to be the restaurant you want to go into. Mm-hmm. Same on mm-hmm. Brick Lane in East End. If you're walking up Brick Lane and you want to know where is the place to get a really good curry, don't go into the places where you've got touts outside. Where you see all the green ghosts. Yeah, yeah. You know, come on in. We'll give you 50% discount, free wine, free yeah. dessert, free this. Those are the places to avoid. To I'm avoid. sorry to say. Now, that is part of a game about Brick Lane. Don't you kind of barter and, and negotiate for your dinner? You kind of can. Yeah, yeah. you kind of can. Um, the more desperate they are, the less likely you are to want to go in there, I think. Um, If you can get a good deal and they're happy to say, yeah, sure, we'll throw you in a free bottle of wine and the menu looks good and there's people in there, then go for it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's a good point about identifying, um, making sure that if if it's a, again, Thai place, see if there's any Thai or local Asian community going there or if there's any pho, make sure there's Vietnamese people in there uh, enjoying it. So that's a good point. I'll have to keep that in mind next time. But I think as well, if the, as soon as you get off the main drags, you get away from away from Leicester Square, away from Piccadilly Circus. As soon as you head for Shoreditch, Spitalfields, Hoxton, Dalston, going further east out towards Greenwich, you're going to come across local Londoners mm-hmm. because it is the parts of town that we go. Mm-hmm. If you said to me, where are you going to go this weekend? Where do you want to go where there's cool bars and great cocktails and secret places to go out? There's a couple of them around Leicester Square, and I surely could tell you where they are, mm-hmm. but I'm going to want to go to places where there aren't going to be loads of tourists. Even though I guide them for a living, I, with all the love in the world, I want to get away from you guys at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Leo Heaton, and you're listening to Andy Steve's Travel Podcast. This episode of Andy Steve's Travel Podcast is brought to you by the Bose Micro, my favorite travel-sized Bluetooth speaker. I've enjoyed Bose products for years, and they hooked me up with the latest edition of their travel-sized Bluetooth speakers. If anyone has enjoyed the Mini 2, this new speaker, the Micro, can match that quality of sound but beats it on three different things. First off, it's smaller. It really fits into any nook and cranny in your bag. Number two, its rubberized exterior makes it much more durable so you can roll it along the floor, it can fall down, you know, you can beat it up a little more and it doesn't show any worse for wear. Number three, it's water resistant, meaning you can take it to the beach, in the shower and on the boat with no stress at all. It makes for a perfect summer traveling mini Bluetooth speaker. You can check out information about this Bose product and more at andysteves.com and of course, purchase them at bose.com, B-O-S-E, Check out this Bose Micro and take it with you on your next adventure around the world. Happy travels, guys. Check out the Bose Micro speaker. Ciao. All right. This is Andy Steves, and I'm with Leo Heaton, Blue Badge Guide extraordinaire um, and aficionado of all things London. Um, I don't want to date this episode, but there is some baby mania going on in London at the moment. Break it down for us. Um, there's a new royal baby in the family. Yeah, get us up to speed on this side of the Atlantic. We're a little behind the times. Well, I actually would say you guys are more excited about it than we are in many ways. Um <laughs> Every U.S. visitor that I have had the privilege of guiding over the last two or three weeks, oh my goodness, 
everyone wants to know about the baby and Harry and Meghan's wedding. It's been a busy month for the royal family. Um, Louis Arthur Charles was born on the 23rd of April. He is William and Kate, to give them their proper titles, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. He is their third child makes him fifth in line to the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he's very gorgeous. They released their official photographs of him uh, just over a week ago. He was asleep in every single picture, bless him. <laughs> um, and yeah, he's he's yet another gorgeous addition to that very lovely family. That's great. I read an article, I think it was on CNN. Again, it's probably just international baby hype, but um, they were talking about how now the daughter, the middle daughter just made history as soon as the baby boy was born because she's the first lady, the f- first royal female to not get bounced by a younger male, if I understood correctly. That's absolutely correct. Oh my yeah, goodness, I'm on have, a roll. Yeah, they've changed <laughs> the law. So previously, you would always have had that any male heirs in, in line would have always come first. Any girls would have been bumped to the bottom of the, of, of the tree, if you mm-hmm. like. Charlotte, now imagining order of, of hierarchy, you have Charles and then William and then the three children in the order in which they've been born. So George yeah. and then Charlotte and then Louis. Isn't there, um, who's between the Queen and William? Just Charles. Charles, but he's, how old is he? Prince Charles is 71. So yeah, he's he's getting on a bit, but yeah. he's still first in line. Would he take it if the Queen, if when the Queen dies? Uh, well, yeah. unless he would have to choose to abdicate, yeah. which for any monarch is a really big deal. And there yeah. would have to be a serious reason for him to do that. Mm-hmm. And as much as... William is certainly more popular and is younger and is this kind of modern royal representing a 21st century royal family. Yeah. It would be, Charles doesn't really have any reason to step down. Okay. I, so, I figured for whatever reason I had in my head that, that um, maybe if somebody was like, you know, well on um, and they wouldn't want to have two transitions or maybe if he's like, well, I've been Prince my whole life. Why, why change now? <laughs> He, I mean, he certainly has the option to abdicate. Yeah. But when you think this is somebody who has been first in line to the throne of, of Britain for his mother's been on the throne 67 years. What a what a bummer. Is, or do, do you, you know, think it's OK? I think he's done all right. I, well, he's he does amazing things for charity. Uh-huh. He he's you know, he bless him. He's been waiting a long time. Um <laughs> Hang on, I should, you'll have to retract that. She hasn't been on the throne 67 years. She's been on the throne 65 years. 60, so, 65 years. Yeah. Well, so you know what? she's been on the throne 65 I'm sure my Twitter years. will blow up with all sorts of corrections. Oh, I know, I know. She got it wrong. She's meant to be a blue 65 bad guy. years. Yeah, 65 years on the oh, throne. Oh, that's great. Um, wow, that's crazy. And let's see, a healthy baby, all's good. Um, yeah. I, I've seen some memes where it's like the a picture of the royal family, and they're like, uh, the royal family, the biggest wealth care recipients in England or something like that, or, or uh, well, welfare um, uh, recipients of England. What's the vibe? The royal family is generally popular, right? Across England. I would say uh, so, yes. People accept it and they're like, yeah, it's expensive. But apparently in terms of tourism and economy, they generate more, if I understand. But It's tricky for me to answer these kind of questions because I'm hugely biased. Mm-hmm. I talk about them every day. 
they make up a huge part. You know, my income is made up of taking people to visit their homes, their palaces, mm. their residences. So it's very difficult for me to say negative stuff because I think that the tradition and, you know, what they bring in terms of, of the tourism and the interest that, that countries who don't have this same thousand years of history, you know, mm -hmm. you can trace the lineage back to 1066 and William the Conqueror. But it, how much do they cost us? If you boil it down to per taxpayer per year, it's, I again, your, your followers will correct me, I'm sure. <laughs> it's about the price of a pint of milk per taxpayer per year. It's less than a dollar uh -huh. per taxpayer, which for me, I don't think that's very much. My yeah. contribution to their security and the money that they spend they're now fairly self-sufficient. A lot of it comes from property. Mm -hmm. A lot of it comes from investments. The Crown Estate is hugely wealthy. Mm -hmm. The Queen pays 80% tax on everything that the Crown Estate, you know, that is her personal income. Mm -hmm. So they do give back. They put an awful lot back in. Mm -hmm. It, You know, I'm always going to say, yes, I can see people's arguments. And is it a tradition that is so outdated that it should be done away with? I don't think so. I yeah. think that they bring a huge amount, you know, and and it's great. You know, and I love taking people to Windsor Castle. I'd be very disappointed if that was ever to end. <laughs> well, so, you know what? I guess our listeners will just have to come to London and, and develop their own opinion. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, yeah, if, if we were back in the 1600s and it was the Roundheads versus the Cavaliers, I'm afraid I'm one of the ones with the big flowing flowing wig and full on <laughs> in support of the royal family. Um, but I, I am aware there is lots of people that, that don't feel quite as passionately about it as I do. Oh, that's great. I'm with uh, Leo Heaton, a Blue Badge Guide and uh, London expert. Thanks for joining us. This is Andy Steve's Travel. We'll be back in a second. This episode of Andy Steve's Travel Podcast is brought to you by Milltown House, guest house on the Dingle Peninsula. We have 10 luxury bedrooms in one of Ireland's most popular villages. We have 56 pubs and some of the best seafood in the country. As we say in the local Irish language, Ced Mila Falcha, 100,000 welcomes await. Visit us at www.milltownhouse.com. All right, I'm Andy Steves. Leo, um, I want to hear just a little bit about the cocktail and speakeasy culture in London. That is my favorite thing. I love to go to a nice place where, they, where I can get old-fashioned in a kind of throwback atmosphere. If we can talk kind of generally about the culture and then maybe describe one or two of your favorite, uh, that'd be great. London as a cocktail spot has certainly come on leaps and bounds in the last as little as five years, really. If you'd said to somebody five years ago, where's the best place to get a cocktail in London? Nine times out of 10, they'd have told you a very swanky high-end hotel bar, somewhere like the American bar at the Savoy, you know, somewhere where you would go in, the bar, you'd hear the Lanesborough, the Barclay, all these big hotel names. Now you're finding, especially in the East End and in North London, there's real options for amazing cocktails in secret real prohibition themed 1920s kind of style spaces and there are some fabulous bars time out 
is the best place to find out new openings, mm-hmm. what's cool, what's open at the moment. So timeout is a, it, do they still publish a- actual, um, is it like weekly or monthly kind of um, uh, gig and venue updates? Yes. Uh, oh. In addition to the online presence, they publish a paper edition. It comes out every single Tuesday mm-hmm. and you can find it in cafes. And if you can't get it on the Tuesday when it comes out, cafes and bars will have copies mm-hmm. that you can go and grab a copy and it's the absolute definitive guide to what is on this week that, that's what i do as soon as i touch down in most cities in europe they have timeout or something equivalent and i take a long cafe, uh, coffee i call it like a, a couple hours get a coffee sit down with a timeout a map a guidebook and and trip advisor and just kind of begin to craft uh, an experience in a city i do that for my guidebook research um if i haven't had time to, to plan ahead, but um, timeout is a great resource online and print in most uh, European cities. So mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, speakeasy or uh, prohibition era bars. Um, what are the characteristics? I like to think of like dark wood, uh, Edison lights, uh, nice glasses, good whiskey, chill atmosphere. Let's talk about one like Nightjar. Have you been to Nightjar? Yes, I have. Nightjar would be pretty much top of my list at the moment. Um, Nightjar is in the East End, uh, just on the border of the City of London and the East End that we were talking about earlier, that kind of Spitalfields, Hoxton, Shoreditch area. Mm-hmm. Nightjar is your quintessential, it's an unmarked door. You have to know exactly where to look. There's just a symbol of the Nightjar. A Nightjar is a bird mm-hmm. and you find the symbol of the bird on the door. So you have to know where it is, what you're looking <laughs> for, which immediately creates that kind of vibe that you're going somewhere that is unusual and, and something a bit, uh, uh, ugh, put my teeth in, something <laughs> that is a little bit out of the ordinary. Sure. Um, when you enter immediately, all the best speakeasies, you got to go downstairs. It's not at street level. You will disappear off into some fabulously atmospheric basement. And exactly as you said, it's all very much imagine that kind of US prohibition era, 1920s themed bar, uh, wooden bars, classically dressed bartenders, proper shirts and waistcoats making an amazing, you don't even have to look at a menu. They will say what kind of, you know, what's your favorite spirit? What kind of flavors do you like? Mm-hmm. Do you like sweet? Do you like sour? Do you like fruit? And they'll just make you something. Mm-hmm. You don't even mm-hmm. need to look at a, a menu. You you mentioned all the characteristics that I would include with one edition. There's always a jazz bar or a trio, a double bass and some drums. That's in the I love. Somewhere. Lots of live music. And Nightjar has live music four or five nights a week. It's incredible. So uh, I was just looking at my description. It'd, it'd be redundant to read it out loud. But the cool thing is, I, I just mentioned Night Bar. You agreed that it was one of the best. You could make a day walk from Brick Lane and Spitalfield Market and I'll walk up towards uh, up north through this area, these few different neighborhoods, and then mm-hmm. have a nightcap at night chair. You can spend a whole day and that'd be a great one. Uh, just Absolutely. going spot to spot. It is so dense. I love yeah, that. You love night jar. Nightjar has now opened. They have a sister bar, Mm-mm. which has opened. It's a little bit further in the city. It's called Oriole, O-R-I-O-L-E, the Oriole bar. And it's a sister bar to Nightjar. It's in Smithfield, Farringdon mm-hmm. sort of way. Very similar vibe. And that's getting, that's hitting all the reviews. Very similar. Loads of people are raving about it. So speaking of reviews, and I can't imagine a person that would be better to talk to about this, but um, you 
are a guide in London. You are very uh, familiar with TripAdvisor and Yelp and various uh, crowdsourcing websites out there uh, where people can leave reviews. Um, mm-hmm. Last night, I watched a Vice documentary about a guy who created a fake restaurant and maintained it for seven months um, and rose to number one spot yeah. on TripAdvisor, if I understood correctly. It's just the craziest story. So this guy, um, in, in this documentary they share, he take some fake photos in his backyard and he lives in a little um, shack in the back. Um, And then he posts up a phone number and a geotag in order to get approved. Um, And then just keeps rejecting people, uh, people's requests for reservations and um, has all his friends leave five star reviews. Um, And he does this for seven months up until where he uh, reaches the top rated restaurant in London. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, incredible. Just goes to show what you can get away with online but he actually i don't know whether you got to the point they did have one night Mm -hmm. where they opened as a restaurant (laughs) and they i mean it was they bought microwave ready meals they did pot noodles and they were serving you know they were doing pot noodles and serving them to people and having these poor people who were sitting there who must have been thinking well you know yeah i i don't know whether it's high end but yeah and but instagramming instagramming their pot noodles it's it's classic i would say 21st century desperate urban search for the next cool thing it hit on all spots because um he it wasn't just like three groups that he let in he also populated his backyard all the way up to his neighbor's roof to to seat people all around there's a dj that was playing lounge music plus um just restaurant noise and remember this is just in a dingy backyard he had to blindfold them to walk along the little uh, back alleyway to get into his backyard because it's so shady but Again, this is kind of what I would say, you know, Milan, London, Paris, New York are all about. No, this is exclusive. He would tell people for seven months, no, I'm sorry, Wednesday, we don't have any availability. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, then he picked three at random to pick. And he said four of the six wanted to rebook. Yes. So it's it's so funny. So, anyways, that goes along with say, um, like, just be sure to uh, read between the lines with uh, crowdsourcing websites like TripAdvisor, and that's really where the value of a local guide like Leo Heaton comes in. Leo, where can our uh, listeners uh, get in touch with you? Where can they look you up? How if they're coming to London, how can they find you? The easiest way to get hold of me, I am very findable. I'm the only Leo Heaton, pretty much, mm-hmm. um, who's based in the UK, but you can. Find find me on either guidelondon.org.uk that is the site where london blue badge guides are based so guidelondon.org.uk and then search my name you can also search for any of my wonderful london colleagues on that site or and if you're looking for it's a l-e-o first name h-e-a-t-o-n last name so leo heaton exactly. ju- just like it sounds yeah and if you're looking for somebody in the wider United Kingdom, in the British Isles, you can go to britainsbestguides.org. And again, myself, I'm on there and loads of my fa- equally fabulous colleagues are on there as well. Great. Let's see, do you do you keep up uh, Instagram or anything where people can follow you? I do. I am Leo Heaton um, on Twitter. I am shamefully poor at keeping my social media channels up to date. I always need a leaf out of your book. I'm rubbish. Uh, I'm learning as I go. I am on Instagram. um, And 
at some point there will be a revitalized website. Putting <laughs> a renaissance. Oh, I know. I a Leo know. renaissance. Wonderful. Well, Leo, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's been a pleasure reconnecting. All the best. And I will be sure to take you out for a little nightcap one of these one of these days when I'm back in town. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Cheers from, uh, from this side of the Atlantic. Have a good one. And bye from London. Thank you. Oh. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that slice of London. For many years, I didn't make it a priority to spend much time there, but once I had the excuse to design a few tours and write a guidebook chapter on this city, my senses were awakened to a wonderful new world full of ales, curries, music, and pop culture trends, and more. And it's local guides like Leo who can bring this city, its culture, and amazing history to vivid life on your very next visit. So be sure to look her up. Next week, we're headed to Budapest for a chat with Sergeant Ponce, posted at the American Embassy there on Liberty Square in the Hungarian capital. Budapest, what a city. Yeah, the baths are awesome. Just walking along the Donaby River is amazing. The rune pubs at nighttime are amazing. Uh, Deak Ter, as you already know, just hanging out there with a group of friends, grabbing a blanket, uh, just chilling, enjoying the weather. That's always nice. Margit Island is amazing. So, I mean, the list goes on and on. By the way, on this season of Andy Steve's Travel Podcast, I'm working with the team at Podcast and Radio Networks. If you're thinking about starting your own show, they've got just the right people in place to turn your podcasting dreams into broadcasting reality. For more information, check them out at podcastandradio.com. You can connect with WSA Europe, Andy's tour company, at WSA Europe on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thanks again for listening. To find all show details and links to connect with our guest, find it online at andysteves.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.